Thank you for listening to our Truth in Life podcast. This season, we will survey the Bible's unfolding story of redemption. From Genesis to Revelation, every book points to Christ and edifies His church. For more information on our church, visit ChristTheWord.com. Um, this class, as you know, is a, a week on a book. That means some books like Psalms, really one week, you know, and some books like Obadiah a week, you know, because, you know, Obadiah is one chapter. It's just one of those tiny little books like Titus and, and uh, Jude. And so um, we're going to be spending one week on a number of the major prophets. We don't have Isaiah. I don't know where Isaiah fits in the uh, in this series of classes, Isaiah is probably the most, in many people's eyes, and, and in my understanding. with uh, this, because I think that this might be full. Oh, okay. So I'm going to use this phone for, okay. so nice to have a recording. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Um, Isaiah is the favorite of a lot of people, uh, although Raymond said that Jeremiah is his favorite because of years spent listening to it as he drives to and from school. So Jeremiah is at least the favorite of one. The major prophets are the prophets that are long, okay? They have long books. That's the only distinction between major and minor is how long the books are. So you have the major prophets include Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, not Lamentations, but Ezekiel and Daniel, all right? Lamentations is also by Jeremiah. It's attributed to Jeremiah. We're not exactly certain, but over years it has been thought to be the work of Jeremiah as well. We're not touching Lamentations. It's his lament over what has happened. The book of Jeremiah is his prophecy. I would say that in this year, if you can establish a pattern that would be helpful, it would be to read the book before the week that it's studied. I really think it will, it will add an awful lot to your retention. You can do it quickly. Last night, I've read Jeremiah a number of times. Last night, I just read half of it again before going to bed. It was quite simple. We're not reading it to, to study it. It's, we're reading it to familiarize ourselves with it. But it might be a helpful thing in, in that it would lead you to, um, to read through the Bible in a year, which if, if you've never done it as a practice, that is well worth uh, embracing and making a part of your life. So we're jumping in to the middle, actually, kind of the late history of the Old Testament by starting with Jeremiah. This is one of the, the, the drawbacks of dividing things up and not having every teacher teach every book. We've given certain teachers a, a, a span. I have Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, and Amos. And so you come in at the point in history that Jeremiah prophesied. Ezekiel, which we'll go to next, is a contemporary, basically a contemporary of Jeremiah. And so we're looking at the same time frame, so it helps. Daniel is also contemporaneous with those two, a little older, but nevertheless also prophesying, overlapping with those two. And so we will, and then when we go to Joel, we, we jump back in time. So we're going to be doing that together. I'll explain it as we go along. But Jeremiah is a prophet of the last stages of the nation, the southern nation of Israel. Now, who knows the difference between Israel and Judah? 
Who can, who can tell me the difference in biblical terminology between Israel and Judah? You might think that Israel, Judah is Israel, right? But for a, a long portion, for a number of centuries in the Old Testament, there is a distinction between Israel and Judah. Who can say where Israel is located? The northern kingdom. It's a, okay, it's the north. Judah is known as the southern kingdom. Judah actually encompasses more than just the tribe of Judah. You remember there were 12 tribes. The Levitical tribe, the Levites, got merged in with others and really sort of are not counted as a, a tribe. Simeon is an enclave within Judah. Um, it, 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 they didn't get their own property and so they sort of merged with Judah over time. And at the point that the two kingdoms divided, which I'll talk about briefly in a second, we also see Benjamin ally with the southern tribe. So it's really not 11 against one, it's about nine against uh, three, something like that. What happens in the nation of Israel and uh, is that, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to run through this good chart that was done by Matt McClavick. You have the, the beginning of the story of God's people. In Genesis, the story of God's people begins with Adam and then it falls with, with Cain. And then it resumes with, after the death of Abel, with another son named Seth. That son is God's chosen one. He prospers, his line goes one direction, Cain's uh, line goes another direction and eventually there's the flood and that's in Genesis chapter 6 and at the flood God says I'm tired of this I'm done with it I'm going to work only with the the descendant with Noah who is the only righteous man he's a son of Shem and so all the line of Shem except Noah and all the line of Cain are wiped out God begins again with Noah uh, Noah is has children and we come just a few chapters after the flood to God choosing Abraham, who is one of the descendants of Noah. He is a descendant, remember, uh, have I been calling the son of Adam Shem? Did I say Seth? Okay, because I get, I often say Sam, Shem when I mean Seth and so forth. Uh, Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, Ham sins against his father at, in some way that is uh, uh, shameful and is rejected by God. Shem is chosen by God to be his, his fruitful line. Japheth lives in his brother's tents, God says. And so Japheth and Shem become a, sort of a unity and, and Ham goes off in a bad direction. A son of Shem is, uh, a descendant of Shem is Abraham. And then we come to the God choosing again, like he did with Noah, a particular person. This time he doesn't wipe out the rest of the world. But he says, you are going to be the father of my people. And from you is going to come the one that was prophesied way back with Adam, the one who will be the savior of the world. And so at this point, it becomes a story of a particular person and then a particular people. We go, Abraham. Isaac and Jacob, whose name is also Israel. Israel has 12 sons. You know those 12 sons are the 12 tribes of Israel. Judah, Reuben, uh, continuing all the way down through Benjamin. All right. Joseph is a son. All those sons are sons of 
Jacob. Jacob is also known as Israel. We believe that Israel is given the name of Jacob rather than the name Abraham. The nation is not called Abraham, it's called Israel, which is the, son, the, the, the name of the third son, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe it's because at that point, Abraham had two sons, well, actually many more than that as well, but only two that are talked about in the Bible. Abraham had two sons who are Ishmael, right, and Isaac. Ishmael is the son by the slave girl and, and the sin. Isaac is the son of promise. And so Isaac is chosen between the two sons of Abraham. Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau, twins. God chooses Jacob. Esau is not chosen. Why does the name of Israel become the third. The, why does Israel get called after the third son? We believe it's because all 12 of the sons are incorporated into God's people. And thus the name of the, of the nation is that son. Those 12 tribes go on. They rise. They go through the period of, of imprisonment and slavery in Egypt. They then go through Moses setting them free, Joshua bringing them into the land, the judges ruling over the land, Samuel being one of the judges. Finally, the people say, give us a king. All right, I'm running through a lot of centuries all at once. Samuel says, give us a king. They establish Saul as their king. All right, the first king. The second king is David, the chosen one of God, the one from whom God promises the savior of the world will come. David has a son named Solomon. Solomon turns aside from God later in his life. God says, I'm going to tear part of the kingdom away from you, Solomon, and I'm going to put it in the hands of another. But because of my promise to your father, I'm going to allow you to continue as the king of a, a reduced kingdom. That reduced kingdom is called Judah because David and Solomon are of the tribe of Judah. The rest of the kingdom on the north is called Israel. It still has the name Israel, but this new kingdom, I don't know if you'd call it new or not, it has the abiding king, but it doesn't have the land. That kingdom becomes Judah. It's named after the one tribe, even though there are three really that are a part of it. And so the northern kingdom goes off its way. We're really not dealing with the northern kingdom. There are prophets who went to the northern kingdom. And for centuries, those prophets worked and did their work. And some of the most famous of the stories in the Old Testament have to do with prophets who were to the northern kingdom. But those people, the minute they went away, the king of that kingdom, the guy who God gave it to was a man named Jeroboam. He immediately thought, if I let my people go down to Jerusalem, which was a part of Judah, the southern kingdom, if I let them go there and worship, the people are all going to run away from me. They're going to turn away. They're going to go back. And therefore, he erected golden calves at two places, way up north in Dan and way down south at um, sh sh uh, the mountain in the south. What's the name of it, guys? Anyone help me with that? Anyway, he erected idols and his people became a, a really depraved people, a nation of wickedness. There were some almost good kings, some terrible, many of the worst kings that you'll read about in the Bible, like Ahab, were kings of that northern kingdom, just awful. They brought in Baal worship. And if, if you read Jeremiah, one of the things you'll see is that the people of the south in Judah say, we're better than other people. We have certain things that they don't have. We don't worship Baal, even though they at times kind of did. But they pride themselves that they're better. And one of the messages that Jeremiah brings is, you're no better than your northern cousins. 
You, you may think. So what happens in the northern kingdom is that God says enough. And the Assyrians come and wipe out the nation. The Assyrians deal with people in a, in a manner that I don't know if we've ever heard of since. I, as I understand it, Asher, well, the, the kings, Ashurbanipal was the final one, but the kings of Assyria came into the northern kingdom and said, we're going to take you to new lands, fertile lands, where you'll be happy. But they mixed up families. They made people go in every direction. I'm told that one of their practices would take one husband and one wife and say, now you're together. And it really reduced the roots of people just tore away the roots and the, the 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 northern tribes basically disappear from history he resettles the king resettles his people in the northern kingdom he sends people from elsewhere in assyria to the northern kingdom they get there and lions attack them and things go wrong and he says, we need, to, we need to go get back to worshiping the God of this land. The God of the land is not pleased. And so he sends back a few priests from the northern kingdom and he sends back a few people. And so there are some people who try to worship God, but it is what you'd call a mongrel worship. It's syncretistic. It combines the God of Israel with golden calves. And the people of the south look on that kingdom as being utterly corrupt. We're dealing with the southern kingdom. Now, I want to give you a sense of history. And I need, uh, I need you, Jack. And I, I need you, Luke. And uh, I need uh, one other person. Wow, I've got I've to move this because you're not going to have room. Okay. I need someone big and strong. That's not you, is it? Calvin? Come on, Calvin. <laughs> Come on, Calvin. Show off for that girl, all right? Here. <laughs> Here. All right. This is a, a, a timeline that was done in the... Uh, okay, now i got to get you to take this side. And Jack, come here and take the book. And you're going to take the center, okay? Okay, I want you to walk across. I want you to take this very carefully. I spent 50 bucks on this stupid thing. Okay? All right? Okay. All right. Walk all the way. Okay. You see this thing? Okay, it was done in the 1800s. It's, it's utterly cool. All right? It is really... Yeah, it has all the history of everyone on here. You know? I have a littler version that's really not as, as cool as this one, but I'll probably put it up on a wall. All right, it begins way back using, using the, the, the chronology established by a guy named Bishop Usher, who's mocked for it because he actually gave a time of day that God created the earth. But the chronology is still accurate. The, the time of day he's laughed at, but the guy was a serious guy and he did a good job. And so we come back here and here we have in 4004 creation. What do we know? You know, Adam. In 4004. But what we do know is that there are enough dates and times given that this is a basically faithful chronology timeline of biblical history. So we have Adam born here. We have here the birth of Seth. Now, if you look, each of these little lines as you go along uh, is a decade, okay? Uh, 10 years, and each of these is 100, 200, 300, 400, okay? Do you understand? So the, the little lines you can see going up and down are decades. The 
the, the points down here are centuries from creation. So you get to 150 after creation and you have the, well, 130, you have the birth of Seth, who is the son of Adam, who replaces Abel, who was killed by his brother. You keep on going and you see Adam's still alive. You see the line of Adam here? You see the line of Abel that ends here? You see the line of Cain that goes on this way and ends where? Where does Cain's line end, folks? What? The flood. Because the flood, everyone's wiped out and only one survivor, one surviving family. So Cain's line ends there. And so Canaan, the land of Canaan and the Canaanites have nothing to do with Cain. Uh, just something to bear in mind. Abel, his line ends here. Adam and Eve have Seth. And so you have Seth continuing on down. You have the birth of Canaan. You have all the children of Seth. Seth continues down to here. The son of Adam lives until where is and what, who begins here? Do you see this? Noah. Noah. They almost meet. You wouldn't realize that, would you? That the son of Adam is alive until the birth of Noah. Okay. No doubt that Noah is learning things from people who knew Adam because Adam goes all the way to here. All right? So it's, uh, and Seth continues just a little bit further than his father, about another century or two. <laughs> what? You mean Abraham? Because Noah would have been at the flood, right? Yeah. Noah, no, Noah is, is here, and you'll, you'll see. The flood comes up here, okay? You understand, he's already 600 years old, isn't he? Isn't it when he's 600 that the flood occurs? I think so. Okay. Yeah, but it, it, they just drop it here. I didn't mean that. I was wrong. They drop it here. They don't continue it because they don't know where it goes and it ends there. So they don't bother trying to fill it out because the Bible doesn't fill it out until the flood. Okay, does that make sense? So here we have Noah going and you can see Methuselah is still alive. Methuselah dies right before the flood. Here's the flood. And so, and then you have Shem born and you come all the way here to Abraham. So we're talking about we're, the children of Abraham. The children of Abraham, they go through the, the patriarchs, they go through the captivity in Egypt, they go through the judges, and then they, they have their first king, all right? And that's Saul, second king, David, third king, Solomon. And then the kingdom divides, and you see a divided monarchy, all right? And then you see the divided, the northern kingdom, which is up above. You see how it goes up, and there's this twin path here? That's the division between the two kingdoms. And then this one ends. But the southern kingdom of Judah continues on. There are kings throughout the path going this way in the southern kingdom who are good. But as we go further on, we get to some very wicked men. Hezekiah is a good king, unlike his father, Ahaz. Hezekiah is a good king. He reigns 28 years. He has a son named Manasseh. I don't remember. I don't know if those of you who, how many of you were here? I think Nathan preached on Manasseh, didn't he? Uh, you, you remember? And Manasseh repented at the end of his life. And God had said, I am going to bring devastation on you. But 
Manasseh repents, and God says, I won't bring it in your lifetime. And so Manasseh has a son, Josiah, who is maybe the greatest king of all these kings. He says, I am going to follow God. God doesn't bring devastation in his lifetime either. But after Manasseh, after Josiah, we come to the era of Jeremiah. And this is a tension. Okay, thanks, guys. You did a good job. Can you fold that back up? Give you a picture of things. We continue on. Uh, here's the crucifixion. This is all biblical history outside of the Bible. You know, it's the church. All right. Isn't that cool? Yeah, I'll give you a PDF. <laughs> now, here is something that, um, that I, I think is more... Oh, man. Uh, can someone... There. Come here. Octavia. Yeah, I need you. This is a... Paid $60 or $70 for this thing. Okay. This is basically that graph all in one. It's a circle. It begins... And every one of these is a century. Okay, begins with Adam, and you see how long he lasts. You see how long his his children last. You see the division in the kingdom. You see Christ, and uh, it goes around in a circle. Kind of interesting, isn't it? You know, if any of you want to look at it, I'll leave this up here like this. And it, it dates other things in there, like the rise of the Confucius, and so it's really a fascinating uh, little timeline. All right. Um, we have the, the this is uh, um, not according to the books of the Bible like the last chart was. This is according to the, to the, the time, and, and it's delineated by centuries, millennia, rather than by books of the Bible like the last one. But this is basically what I've talked to you about, the, the division, the ten northern tribes going off, the, ten, the two southern tribes um, continuing on. And we're at the end, as we come to Jeremiah, we're coming to the end where God is going to do what he promised he'd do in, um, oh man, what time is it? What he's going to do in, in judging the, the southern kingdom. So, Jeremiah is a prophet, which means he's called by God. If you look in Jeremiah 1 and 2, God says to Jeremiah, I'm going to call you. He says, he's a lot like Moses. He says what? He says, who am I? I'm young. You know, why are you choosing me? God says to him, I'm going to be with you and I will establish you. And I, oh, it's this fantastic, okay, this fantastic statement he makes where he says, he says, the word of the Lord came to me a second time saying, what do you see? And I see a boiling pot facing away from the north. From the north, the evil will break on all the inhabitants of the land. God's telling him what he's going to be forecasting, what he's going to be doing, and what 
what Jeremiah will be prophesying. For behold, I am calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north, and they will come, and each one of them will put his throne at the opening of the gates of Jerusalem, and against all its walls round about, and against all the cities of Judah. I will speak my judgments on them concerning all their evil, whereby they have forsaken me, and have burned incense to other gods, and worshipped the works of their own hands. So God is saying to him, I am going to speak my judgments through you, and through these nations that are going to come and fulfill what you prophesy. Now, gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all, all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. Don't be frightened, he says. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's called the weeping prophet because he is so sad by his message. His message is so bleak to his mind. And he's, in his lamentations, he mourns over what is going to happen and what God is going to do. But God says, don't you back off one inch. If you back off my message, I'll back off you. Now behold, I have given you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and as walls of bronze against the whole land of the kings of Judah to its princes, to its priests, and to the people of the land, and they will fight against you, but they will not overcome you, for I am with you to deliver you. God says, I am making you a fortified city, a pillar of iron, as walls of bronze, and you're going to stand against the entire land alone. This is a lonely man. He is a lonely man. He starts during the reign of Josiah. Remember, Josiah was a great king, a great man of God. It seems, it's quite clear from the chronology that we find in Scripture, that Jeremiah receives his call to prophesy right about the time that Josiah is having the temple restored. And while they're restoring the temple, they find a book of the law hidden in the wall of the temple. And they bring it to Josiah and he reads the law of God for the nation of Israel. It has been eclipsed. It has been forgotten. They have not been living by it. Josiah finds that book and says, we're going to do what this book says, reinstituting the, the festivals, the Passover, which had not been celebrated. Josiah was a great king, wiping out the, the altars to false gods, wiping out the false places. This young man was as courageous and bold as Jeremiah was following him. So in the year that that, that, that law was found, the copy, the scroll was found in the temple, God calls Jeremiah. He prophesies during the last decade of Jeremiah and then through, or of Josiah, and then through four additional kings. Jehoahaz, who is the second son of Josiah, who receives the kingdom and rebels and is taken captive just three months of Jehoahaz. Jehoiakim, who is the first son. It doesn't follow the uh, first son always. It, sometimes it goes second. And then after that one is gone, the first takes the throne, Jehoiakim. Then Jehoiakim and finally Zedekiah. So he prophesies during a portion of one great king, the ending portion of Josiah, and through four evil kings, three of whom are sons of of. Josiah, two of whom are thoroughly evil. The final one is a, an absolutely tragic figure. Jeremiah 
calls the people to repent of their sin. And the sins of the people that he is sent to declare as this spokesman of God who says, uh, gird up your loins and arise and speak to them of all of which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. What are the sins of the nation that God is sending Jeremiah to speak his word against. Can any of you think of what one of the sins might be, particular sins of that day? Okay, well, worshiping false gods is always a part of it, all right? Th that is always sort of the er sin. You know what I mean by that? The foundational sin, the sin from which come all the other sins. They've turned away from God, all right? So, God says to them through Jeremiah in this great verse, which I had to memorize in a class in seminary. Very few classes in seminary were worth anything. Uh, but one class was, uh, one professor was superb. And he was a former pastor and a former missionary. And he just made us, for our exams, memorize 60 or 80 verses of the Bible. And uh, that, that has had lasting benefits in my life. Um, in, in Jeremiah 2, Jeremiah says, has a nation, God says through Jeremiah, has a nation changed gods when they were not gods? In other words, Rome was happy with Zeus for centuries. You know, it wasn't a god at all. Zoroaster and the Persians for millennia, you know, still worships in some regions of Persia today. Yeah. God says, but my people, okay, so has a nation changed gods when they were not gods, but my people have changed their glory, the glory of God, for that which does not profit. In other words, they have a true God, and they have exchanged the true God for that, for gods that are nothing. Then this famous verse that we had to memorize, for my people have committed two evils, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters to dig for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's a verse that's just, he says, I am a fountain of living water, but my people have turned to me and instead of me, they've dug cisterns. What's the difference between a cistern and a fountain? Water flow. What's that? Stagnation. Stagnation. A cistern is a repository of water. A fountain is a flow of water, okay? So a cistern, they've gone from me, this flowing fount of life, to cisterns. And not just cisterns, but broken cisterns that cannot hold water. They have gone from life to death. They have exchanged the fountain, the glory of God, for broken cisterns that can't hold water. Now, this is our lives, isn't it? You know, day after day, Month after month, year after year, we make decisions between the flowing waters of God and the broken cisterns of the world. And it's, it's a process that is consistently, we have tasted God's goodness to us. We know his love for us, but we go back like a dog to its vomit. I mean, I'm just speaking biblical passages. We go back to that which has which was killing us. We would rather be dying than living. We make choices of that which is nothing over that which is beautiful and glorious. 
He, he also writes later, uh, prophesies. By the way, I should say that um, Jeremiah is not a chronological book. It's written, um, it's kind of a collage of themes rather than of a, a, a segmented history. And so you're going to find at certain points there's a, sort of a return to, you don't know exactly where in time a prophecy came. You know it was during this entire period. And so you see a sort of reweaving of themes throughout the book. So in chapter 2 it says, my people have committed two evils, forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, hewed for themselves cisterns, broken ones. Then in 18, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, ask now among the nations, whoever heard the like of this? The virgin of Israel has done a most appalling thing. Does the snow of Lebanon forsake the rock of the open country? Or is the cold flowing water for a, from a foreign land ever snatched away? In other words, he's saying they have good sources of water. Do they turn from it? The beautiful water from the mountaintop, do, do people snatch it away? The people keep it. They don't send it away. They don't despise it. For my people have for forgotten me. They burn incense to worthless gods. They've stumbled from their ways, from the ancient past to walk in bypaths, not in a highway, to make their land a desolation, an object of perpetual hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and shake his head. Like an east wind, I will scatter them. Before the enemy, I will show them my back and not my face in the day of their calamity. So God is saying, you have rejected me. I... I am turning my back on you. The day of calamity is drawing near. But there are other sins that are committed by the people in Jeremiah. And you, you need to be aware of these, these categories of sin. Some of them are unique to Jeremiah. Some of them are pan-prophetic. Every prophet complains about them. Elijah and Elisha, the famous prophets of the north, I started to mention them earlier, but didn't. Those prophets complained of the same thing. Some are unique. Here is a, a theme, this theme that we've talked about, departing from God, is pan-prophetic. Every prophet has that message. You have abandoned me. The second one as well, there are many themes, but I've chosen a few. Second one I want to mention is that they have sought unjust gain. In, in Jeremiah 17, Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his deeds. As a partridge that hatches egg, eggs which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. Jeremiah has a way of taking, actually, both in action and in word, taking examples from real life and using them to make his point. Okay, and it, it, at a number of points, Jeremiah does a physical act. He buries a belt to, and, and it gets destroyed. And he says, this is what I'm going to do to you. God is going to do to you. Your glory is going to be gone. A belt was sort of a signal of money and power in his time. He, he takes a stone at the end of Jeremiah. He's been dragged off to Egypt with the remnant of people. And he goes to Egypt, but he says, you haven't escaped Nebuchadnezzar by coming down here. You're going, to, you're going to see his throne set up right over and he buries a stone under the bricks of the courtyard of Pharaoh. Says he'll put his throne right there. He does these kinds of things. Here he's using the, this, the example of a partridge. And I don't know this, but it, apparently par partridges, I mean, I didn't know this prior to reading the Bible and I haven't looked it up, but partridges will hatch eggs that are not their own. Some, I think a number of birds will do that, right? <coughs> They'll just go and sit on some nest. They don't know if it's their own. 
As a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes a fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him, and in the end, he will be a fool. What a, what a metaphor or what an analogy, like a partridge that doesn't care about its own children. This will be, this is the way of those who, who are happy for gain wherever it comes from. Only gain that's worth having is the one that we have earned and have come by justly. And of course, this gain came in a variety of ways. So... The third thing he charges them with, again, this is almost uh, always found in the prophets, not always. They've disregarded the Sabbath in chapter 17. Thus the Lord God said to me, go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out as well as in all the gates of Jerusalem and say to them, listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah. Would you think that this, the breaking of the Sabbath would be right up there with false gods? Doesn't that strike you? There's a whole chapter on it saying, why have you ignored my day for worshiping me? Jeremiah 17, 19 through 27. I won't read it. You can look at it. The fourth one. And this one is unique to the southern kingdom. They have boasted against Israel. They have boasted that they are God's people. We were chosen, not you. And what do they boast in? What things do they say? We have this. The temple. Jerusalem and the ark. They say, we have the temple. The temple. The temple. Jeremiah quotes them that way and says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you say. But you don't worship him. What does it matter that you have good churches on every corner if he's not, if God is not worshipped in them. We have the temple of the Lord. We have the ark. And so he says, they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord and it will not come to your mind nor will they remember it nor will they miss it nor will it be made again. The ark will never be made again. It's gone no matter what Indiana Jones thought he found. It is not the ark. At that time, they will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord and all the nations will be gathered to it. So he's speaking of a day that's coming when he will bring righteousness to the land and they will no longer boast in a temple. They will no longer boast in an ark. They'll no longer boast in Jerusalem itself, but there will be a new Jerusalem. And he starts speaking of Zion, the great hope of God's people. One of the first references to Zion is in Jeremiah, Zion. The city of God, the city of the end of Revelation. He says, and I will come. So here is a theme that you'll find in prophecy. You will have the darkest and direst proclamations of justice and God's wrath. And then immediately following that, you will have a promise of restoration. It's incredible. And throughout Jeremiah, you have a statement of doom and darkness. And then God will open up and say, but I love you. I long for you. It's the most amazing thing. If you, if you look in, I don't even know what to do with some of these statements. Um, In Jeremiah 18, God tells Jeremiah to go down 
to the potter's house. And behold, God is, the potter's making something on the wheel. This is one of those examples from real life. Then the potter doesn't like what he's made. Have you done pottery? You have, have you, you know what it is to throw something on the table, on the, on the wheel? And, uh, and it gets bad, so what do you do? You, you slice it off, you use the, the, the foundation usually for something else, you know, the little bit of, and, and, uh, and then you mash it together and you put it back on. And the potter does that. He says, oh, this isn't turning out right. He, what Jeremiah, what God says to Jeremiah, uh, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to tear down, to make it perish. But if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to do against it. And this is after God has said, I'm going to destroy this nation. But he's still promising that if you repent, I will relent. This is, this is the nature of God. This is fundamental to prophecy. It is dark, dark, dark. But repent and I will fill you as full of joy and glory as I was intending to diminish you and punish you. Jeremiah is full of these, these breaks. And so some of the most um, sad, and this is why Jeremy is uh, called the weeping prophet. You will not hear what God says. My soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly, run down with tears, because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. And yet... Some of the greatest prophecies, we see that Daniel realizes that there is to be a 70-year period of captivity. And he's reading Jeremiah. Daniel will come to that. He said, for thus says the Lord, when 70 years have been completed for Babylon, Babylon's going to take this nation captive during the reigns of those four kings that I mentioned that follow Josiah. During the reigns of those three sons and one grandson of Josiah, there are successive deportations successive exiles. Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes like 50,000 people, then fewer and then fewer and last. All that's left in Jerusalem and Judah are the rabble of the land. A despised, tiny little remnant. Poor people, workers of vineyards, that kind of thing. And they're the ones who are left. But God says, after 70 years have been completed for Babylon, I will visit you and fulfill my good word to you to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you have found comfort in those words? You should know these words. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. And in the darkest moments of life, this is true for those who love God. There will be light. There will be. Uh, then you will call upon me and pray to me. And so this is after this dark period and pray to me. And you, I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will straight restore your fortunes. will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And will bring you back to the place from where I sent you into exile. 
Jeremiah is the prophet who prophesies that there'll be a new covenant that will be written on the hearts of the people, not like the covenant with Moses that they fell from, but a new covenant that he will write on their hearts and that they will live for him. And that covenant is, of course, ultimately brought into place, brought into, into existence by the death of Jesus. And so Jeremiah throughout is promising a new era that will come when the, the Messiah comes. Now, I want to end with the story of Jeremiah and what happens. Jeremiah is opposed. He's thrown in prison. People speak against him. People mock him. He's thrown down at one point because of his continuing to speak to the people against their sins. He's thrown down into a, a mud-filled cistern or well where he can't even rise. And so they have to, when finally one of the godly people in the administration of the kingdom that time says, we've got to get him out of there because he's going to die down there. They go and they bring rags and ropes and they tell him, put the rags under your armpits so that these ropes don't kill you or tear your arms off. And they put the ropes under his armpits and then, or the rags and then the ropes and they heave him out of the sucking mud. And he begs the king not to make him go back there. And the king, this last one, Zedekiah, listens to him. The final king of those four listens to him. He says, submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Do not break your word that you made to him, that you'd obey him. Submit to him. Submit, submit. Zedekiah listens to him. Zedekiah preserves his life. Zedekiah feels the pressure of the people around him who say, don't submit. He's a coward. He he breaks his word. He will not submit. He's a double-minded man. He's probably by far the most appealing of these four kings, this final one. He, he does preserve Jeremiah's life. He listens to him. He says, I'll do what you say, and then he doesn't do it to Jeremiah. But then at the end, Jeremiah says, you will, be, you will not see where you're taken, but where you will go. And then he says, you will see it seems like contradictory. Well, what happens is Zedekiah at the end, so the, you will not see, you will see um, the, the, the throne of Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of his, his reign, Nebuchadnezzar comes down. He, he takes the sons of Zedekiah. He slaughters them before his eyes. And then he puts his eyes out and drags them in chains and hooks to Babylon. So he sees but does not see. There's a tiny remnant left. Jeremiah says to them, trust God, don't rebel, obey Nebuchadnezzar. They say, no, we're going to go, we're going to run away. That, well, actually, they promised to obey him, and then, and then some bad things happen. A guy murders a Babylonian official, and they say, oh, we're frightened. Nebuchadnezzar says, or Jeremiah says, trust God. You will be safe if you stay. They say no, and they force him to go with them to Egypt to flee. Again, disobeying God. Again, doing the very thing they had promised they wouldn't do. And it's down there that Jeremiah buries the stone and says, you will see, you have not escaped Nebuchadnezzar by running. A great prophet, a great, great prophet. Great messages of hope, but it's a hard book to read, isn't it? It's a hard book. Next week, we turn to Ezekiel, who is a parallel to Jeremiah, except he's gone with the exiles to Babylon. Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. Ezekiel is in Susa and in Babylon. All right. 
So thank you. Uh, Drew, would you close us with prayer? Thank you for listening to Truth and Life. If you enjoyed the series, please subscribe. And remember, from Genesis to Revelation, every book is truth to live by.